Let us turn in God's word this morning, first of all, to Psalm 42, and then secondly to Psalm 63. Psalm 42, entitled to the chief musician, Maskell, Maskell Psalm is a teaching psalm intended for giving instruction, masculine for the sons of Korah. As the heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my meat day and night, while they continually say unto me, Where is thy God? When I remember these things, I pour out my soul in me. For I had gone with the multitude, I went with them to the house of God, with the voice of joy and praise, with a multitude that kept holy day. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted in me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. O my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore will I remember thee from the land of Jordan and of the Hermonites from the hill Mizar. Deep calleth unto deep at the noise of thy water spouts. All thy waves and thy billows are gone over me. Yet the Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime. And in the night his song shall be with me. And my prayer unto the God of my life. I will say unto God my rock. Why hast thou forgotten me? Why go I mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a sword in my bones, mine enemies reproach me while they say daily unto me, Where is thy God? Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him who is the health of my countenance and my God. Let's turn next to Psalm 63. Psalm 63, entitled a Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, thou art my God, early will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth for thee, my flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is, to see thy power and thy glory, so as I have seen thee in the sanctuary. Because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. Thus will I bless thee while I live, and will lift up my hands in thy name. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips when I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches. Because thou hast been my help, Therefore, in the shadow of thy wings will I rejoice. My soul followeth hard after thee. Thy right hand upholdeth me. Those that seek my soul to destroy it shall go into the lower parts of the earth. They shall fall by the sword. They shall be a portion for foxes. But the king shall rejoice in God. Everyone that sweareth by him shall glory but the mouth of them that speak lies shall be stopped. Thus far we read God's holy and inspired word. May God bless the reading of his word unto our hearts. So on the basis of these passages of scripture and many others besides that we find the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 45, found on page 
25 in the back of the Psalter. Towards day 45, question 116, why is prayer necessary for Christians? Because it is the chief part of thankfulness, which God requires of us, and also because God will give his grace and Holy Spirit to those only who with sincere desires continually ask them of him and are thankful for them. What are the requisites of that prayer which is acceptable to God and which you will hear? First, that we from the heart pray to the one true God only, who hath manifested himself in his word, for all things he hath commanded us to ask of him. Secondly, that we rightly and thoroughly know our need and misery, that so we may deeply humble ourselves in the presence of of his divine majesty. Thirdly, that we be fully persuaded that he, notwithstanding that we are unworthy of it, will, for the sake of Christ our Lord, certainly hear our prayer, as he hath promised us in his word. Question 118, what hath God commanded us to ask of him? All things necessary for soul and body, which Christ our Lord has comprised in that prayer, he himself has taught us. Question 119, what are the words of that prayer? Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come and will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will recall that the Heidelberg Catechism is divided into three main sections. The first section of the Heidelberg Catechism deals with the matter of our sin and our misery. Because we, through Adam, have fallen into sin as we stand before God, we are guilty, and thus we have misery. The second section, which is the middle section of the Catechism, teaches us about how we are delivered from our sins and from our Miseries it goes article by article through the Apostles' Creed, which teaches us about the work of God redeeming us through the work of His Son, Jesus Christ. The third and final section of the Heidelberg Catechism teaches us how we are to express our gratitude unto God for such a deliverance. Within this third section of the Catechism, it begins by focusing in on the law of God, going through the Ten Commandments that God gave unto Moses. Then, having completed going through the Ten Commandments, the Catechism and the final section, showing us how we are to say thanks unto God, teaches us, to pray. How do we express our gratitude? First, by obedience, keeping his holy law, but then as well by praying. So let us consider this morning, Lord's Day 45, under the theme, Prayer, the chief part of thankfulness. First, we'll consider the necessity is the necessity of praying. Second, its character, what ought to characterize the Christian's prayer. And then third, its certainty. What is the necessity of praying unto God? 
That's where the catechism begins in question 116. Why is prayer necessary for Christians? From a certain point of view, we understand it ought to be unnecessary for us even to have to consider this question of why we must pray. It ought to be unnecessary for us to consider this question because prayer ought to arise with eagerness out of the heart from the lips of the regenerated child of God. Prayer should be so natural to us that it is something that we do as soon as there is any difficulty in our lives, as soon as there is any need, any hardship, as soon as we become aware of the need of the neighbor, or as soon as there is good news that we receive, as soon as there is an occasion for thanksgiving. For the Christian, we should be so used to going unto God in prayer that we do not even need to be reminded why we must pray, but that it arises immediately and almost spontaneously off of the Christian's lips. One writer stated it this way, he said, prayer is to the Christian what breathing is to a healthy person. The newly born child just come forth from the mother's womb into this world as a general rule does not need to be coaxed into breathing. But of his or her own accord starts breathing without mother or father teaching the child to breathe. The child does it. But just as that young infant knows and does of its own accord the work of breathing, so it ought to be that for us as Christians, we pray unto God. It ought not to be the case that we need to be reminded to pray. It ought not to be the case that we must be coaxed into praying unto God, that the elders or that the minister must reprimand us or caution us if we do not pray, but just as naturally as we breathe for as long as we are alive on this earth, so it ought to be that we pray from a heart sincere. And yet the reality is that for as long as we do remain upon this earth, we struggle with prayer. Some even feel intense guilt about their lack of prayers. Some struggle with guilt because of a lack of fervency in their prayers. They know that they must pray unto God and so in obedience they go unto God in prayer, but then it feels at times as if they're simply going through the motions. Their heart and their soul is not involved in it. And then afterward, that individual feels guilt. Others feel guilt about a lack of frequency in going to God in prayer. There are seasons of life where one is more frequent in going to God. Times when one is laid low on the bed of affliction. Times when one walks through the valley of the shadow of death. And then at, that, at times like that, the child cries out earnestly unto God for help, for healing, for strength. But then when God restores that individual to health and strength, when the individual is strong then that individual is not as frequent in going unto God in prayer. And so then that individual feels guilt about lack of consistency in going to his or her father 
in prayer. The writers of the Heidelberg Catechism understood this reality. And so that's why the Catechism then, with the very first question of this Lord's Day, deals with the matter of why. Why is prayer necessary for Christians? Before the Catechism gets into an explanation of what is prayer, before the Catechism teaches us what is to be the content of our prayer, the Catechism begins with the practical and personal question, why? This reminds us again of the approach of the Catechism. Catechism is not intended to be a cold, dogmatic work. But the Catechism is a warm, personal, experiential confession. And every one of us confesses that by nature we struggle in our prayer lives. And so we need instruction as to why we must pray. Why is prayer necessary? The first part of the answer that the Catechism gives is this. Because it is the chief part of thankfulness which God requires of us. Chief part of thankfulness. The Catechism, in beginning to explain unto us why we must pray, begins by answering the question from God's point of view. A little bit later, it's going to evaluate the question of why we must pray from man's point of view, but it begins, why does God require of us prayer? That's the starting point. Not, why do I feel like praying, but what is God's requirement of us? God requires of us to pray because this is the chief part of thankfulness that God requires of us. Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, we understand, is different than, must be distinguished from paying an individual back. We are not recompensing unto someone what is their due. That's not the goal in prayer, that we pay God back for what He has given unto us. You understand the impossibility of ever paying God back. But you understand as well how offensive that would be if we thought that we could pay God back. It might illustrate how offensive this would be with an earthly illustration. Consider that there was a man who saw that his neighbor was in trouble. He was in deep trouble. That neighbor had become a captive. He was a slave. And so this neighboring individual, seeing the plight of the fellow man, decided that he would redeem that captive. In order for him to redeem that captive, he had to pay. No small amount of money, but millions of dollars. To redeem that captive, the neighbor had to empty out his checking account, had to empty out his savings account, had to empty out his retirement account. It cost the neighbor deeply to redeem the one in captivity. After having redeemed the neighbor, then imagine that that person who had just been redeemed came to the person who had set him free and said, I want to express unto you my gratitude, and here's how I'm going to express my gratitude. Here's a $10 bill. Thank you so much for setting me free. 
Can you understand how that would be not just disappointing to the Redeemer, but it would be insulting. I just gave up millions to redeem you. I gave up my retirement and my life savings, and you give me this. See, in prayer, we are not attempting to pay God back. How could we even begin to pay Him back for what He has, for what he has done for us? He gave up that which was precious unto Him. He gave up His only begotten Son who came into this world, suffered and died for our sakes. And so we mustn't think then that with our prayers we somehow earn favor with God. That if only I were more disciplined in my prayers, if only I were more fervent in my prayers, that then I could pay God back and, and earn some sort of merit with God. No. No. Our prayers are the chief part of thankfulness, not a repayment plan. The chief part of thankfulness. The catechism describes our prayers as chief, meaning there are other parts to our thankfulness unto God. It's not only by prayer that we express our gratitude unto God, but the whole of the Christian life is one of expressing gratitude unto God. By our obedience unto God. By our striving to keep His just and good commandments. The catechism expresses his gratitude unto God. By the Christian's giving, by his or her contributing to the causes of Christ's kingdom upon this earth. By seeking the welfare of the neighbor. By keeping the great commandment, love God. And the second, which is like unto it, loving the neighbor. In all of these ways and more, the Christian strives to demonstrate unto God the gratitude that is found in his heart. But of all of these other parts of gratitude, the chief part of gratitude is prayer. Prayer. In prayer, we come unto our Father and we acknowledge that He is God. In prayer, we come unto Him who is the fountain of life, and we drink. And by drinking of the water of life, we express thanks unto God. The very act of coming unto God is itself expressing thanksgiving. It's not only when we include in our prayers, thanks God for this or for that, but in the whole of our prayer. When we make petitions, when we confess our sins, when we ask for forgiveness in all of those things, by coming unto God and acknowledging that He is God, we express our gratitude. The Catechism goes on in explaining the necessity of prayer and also the second half of answer 116 and also because God will give His grace and Holy Spirit to those only who with sincere desires Continually ask them of Him and are thankful for them. Must understand carefully here what the Catechism means when it says that God gives His grace and Holy Spirit to those only who with sincere desires continue, continually ask them of Him. The Catechism is not here referring to the 
initial work of regeneration in the heart of his children. Catechism is not teaching here that there's found this individual and that individual is dead in his trespasses and in his sins. The individual only has a fallen, depraved nature. But then that fallen, depraved individual goes unto God and asks for His grace and Holy Spirit. And then God, in response to hearing that petition, then gives unto that individual a new, a regenerated heart. It cannot be the case that that's what the Catechism is referring to because the person who does not have a regenerated heart cannot pray unto God. The one who has not yet been made alive has no access in prayer unto the Father. That one has the ability to pray unto God means that that individual already has been quickened by the grace and Spirit of God. So this is not a reference to that initial work of regeneration. Nor, when the Catechism speaks of God giving His grace and Holy Spirit only to those who with sincere desires continually ask them of Him, is the Catechism setting forth a condition. The Catechism is not setting before the Christian a stipulation saying that if you are going to continue receiving the grace and the Holy Spirit of God, then you must, and it's dependent upon your activity of asking God for His grace and Holy Spirit. Catechism isn't teaching that God performed the initial work of regeneration, but then if you are going to continue drinking of that water of life, if you are going to continue receiving His grace and Holy Spirit, well, then it's up to you. Now the burden is on your shoulders to continue in receiving those blessings. That also cannot be the case because the Scriptures teach us about the preservation of the saints. And according to the truth of the preservation of the saints, it is God Almighty who sustains us in that salvation which He has purchased for us. God is the sovereign I am that I am. God is the one who so holds His people in His fatherly hand, that it is impossible for us to fall from that salvation. What a fearful thing it would be if it were up to us to continue of our own strength in that salvation which He has begun in us. So what positively then is the meaning of the catechism when it explains that God gives His grace and Holy Spirit to those only who continually ask them of Him. The Catechism is teaching us here is that the grace of God is limited to certain recipients. God does not give His grace and His quickening Spirit unto every single person head for head upon the face of the earth. God does not desire to give His grace and His Holy Spirit unto every single person head for head upon the face of the earth. But God gives gives His grace and Holy Spirit only unto those people whom He has chosen from all eternity. From those who have been adopted into His covenant of grace. But then... uh, What characterizes those who have been adopted into His covenant of grace? What is evident in the hearts and the lives of those who are chosen by the Father? And that's what the catechism is describing for us. There's something that characterizes them. Something that sets them apart from those who have not been chosen by the Father. 
And here's what characterizes those who have been eternally adopted into God's covenant of grace. They seek God's grace and God's Holy Spirit. They continually seek with sincere desires from a heart that has been quickened by the Holy Spirit. They long for God. They understand their dependence upon God. They are not puffed up in pride, imagining that of their own strength they can keep God's holy law. They do not imagine that they are better than the neighbor, but they understand that of themselves they are guilty, sinful, depraved. That God would do no injustice unto them if He would leave them in their sins and afterwards cast them into that lake of fire. That individual, understanding his sins and the guilt due unto him for them, continually cries out unto God for His grace and His Holy Spirit. Psalm 63, verse 1. O God, Thou art my God. Early will I seek Thee. My soul thirsteth for Thee. My flesh longeth for Thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is to see Thy power in Thy glory. So as I have seen Thee, in the sanctuary. God works in us in such a way that He brings us to see through the experiences of our lives our need for Him. We are not stocks and blocks. But we are living, thinking, willing people. And God works in us powerfully and oftentimes in ways that we cannot even understand a desire to be with God. That's why. That's why we pray. Because in the first part, first place, we want to say thanks unto God. In the second place, because we understand that God gives His grace and Holy Spirit only to those who with sincere desires continually ask them of Him. What then characterizes these prayers that the Christian gives unto God? Question and answer 117 teaches us the requisites, the requirements of the prayer which is acceptable to God first that we from the heart pray to the one true God only, who hath manifested himself in his word for all things he hath commanded us to ask of him. Prayer is to arise from the heart, and prayer is to be unto, it's to rise unto, the one only true God. See, prayer is conversation. Prayer is the child of God ascending, as it were, by faith through the doors of heaven, coming into the holy place of God, and with humility of heart, speaking to His Father in heaven. This is why our Father delights in prayer. Because in prayer we are coming and fellowshipping with God. How much do not earthly fathers and mothers yearn to have fellowship with the children that they have? 
How hurtful is it not to earthly fathers and mothers if children refuse fellowship with them and demonstrate that they refuse fellowshipping with father and mother by not talking to father and mother. But conversely, how blessed is that earthly father and mother who do have the ability to converse and speak with their children and hear their children speak unto them. Just as it is a blessing in the earthly home and in the earthly covenant, covenant found on this earth, so it is to the Father's great delight to have His children come and speak unto Him. In this conversation, this speaking unto our Father, we pray to Him for all things that He hath commanded us to ask of Him. In our speech unto the Father, we share with the Father, pour out unto the Father what are the concerns of our hearts, the uncertainties, the fears, the apprehensiveness that we have about situations upon this earth, we can bring these unto Him. We bring as well unto the Father in heaven our gratitude unto Him, taking note of all things physical and spiritual that He has given unto us graciously from His hand. And we say unto Him, Thanks, Father, for all of these blessings. As we come unto our Father, we do not try to hide from Him the rebelliousness that we have by nature, but we come unto Him and openly and with a sorrowful and contrite heart confess where we have transgressed His holy commandment. In this conversation, we open up our hearts and our souls unto our Father, not because the Father does not know what is found in our hearts. It's not as if the Father is ignorant of the sins that we have committed. It's not as if God stands there waiting for us, hoping that we'll come to Him and open up about what are the fears that we have, what are the struggles that we have in our lives. For God already knows the heart of man. But we come unto God and open up unto Him about what weighs upon our hearts and our souls because this is how God has ordained that we fellowship with Him. We speak. And then secondly, what characterizes the prayer of the Christian? Secondly, answer 117 in the middle of the answer, that we rightly and thoroughly know our need and misery. That so we may deeply humble ourselves in the presence of His divine majesty. The psalmist in Psalm 42 sets before us an example of one who thoroughly knew his need and his misery. Psalm 42 verses 1 and 2, As the heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God. For the living God, when shall I come and appear before God? Here the psalmist compares the sorrows and the troubles in his life unto a heart, a deer. This deer is evidently exhausted. He's panting for the water brooks. 
This deer has likely run for a long, long distance, covered a mile, perhaps several miles in distance. This deer has run away from the predator that was chasing it and that would seek to catch it and kill it. This deer, exhausted from having run for such a great distance, sweat coming forth out of every pore of the body, now stands there and it pants. Pants for the water brooks, the refreshing water that would nourish it and give unto it strength so that it can continue on its journey. It's unto that deer that the psalmist compares the state of his soul. Speaking on behalf of God's people, the psalmist says that he pants and that he thirsts for God, the living God. And the idea here is that the psalmist is exhausted. He's weary. The psalmist has no more strength to press on. The psalmist has been pursued by predators, by spiritual predators, by those who are the enemies of God and those who are the enemies of God's people upon this earth. The psalmist has fought against the devil. He has fought against the world. He has fought against the lusts of the flesh. He strove with all of his might to keep God's just and God's holy Law, but now the psalmist has been pushed to the point of exhaustion, spiritual exhaustion. His enemies taunt him, Where is now thy God? They say unto him. Because the psalmist is exhausted and because he has endured the mocking of his enemies, his soul is cast down. Verse 6, O my God, my soul is cast down within me. He is disquieted. He can hardly sleep at night. And it's in that context then that the psalmist says, As the heart panteth, so panteth my soul After thee, O God. He pants, not for earthly, physical water, but his soul pants for the living water. He desires that spiritual water which, when one drinks of it, he will never thirst again. He pants because that's all he can do. He is past the point of being able to give clear, articulate expression to the desires of his heart and of his soul. He cries from the deep anguish experienced in his soul that God in his loving kindness and tender mercies would reach down and satisfy him with the water of life. And so it is, beloved, that sometimes God is pleased to work in the same way in our lives. We are to come to God according to the catechism rightly and thoroughly knowing our need and our misery that we may humble ourselves in the presence of His divine majesty, but Sometimes we are not so keenly aware of our need and of our misery. 
At times we become spiritually complacent. We imagine that we can just coast through the Christian life. And so God in His love for us sends trials, hardships, teaching us again and again that we depend upon Him who is the fountain of every saving good. We come morning, noon, and evening. We come unto God. The psalmist speaks of these different time periods of the day in which we come. Psalm 63, verse 1, O God, Thou art my God, Early, he rises up early in the morning. Early will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth for thee. Verse 4, speaking now of the psalmist, awake, alert in the middle of the day. Thus will I bless thee while I live. I will lift up my hands in thy name. And then verse 6, at the end of the day, when I remember thee, upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches. What is the certainty of the Christian's prayer? The certainty that we must have in prayer is that God will hear our prayers. This confidence in coming before God is, according to the Catechism, one of the requisites, the requirements of prayer. Question 117, what are the requisites of that prayer which is acceptable to God? And the answer, thirdly, that we be fully persuaded that He notwithstanding that we are unworthy of it, will for the sake of Christ our Lord certainly hear our prayer. That's what the Christian must do. He must be fully persuaded that God will certainly hear our prayer. It is not only the case that it is good for us to approach God with the confidence of faith, It is not only the case that it is commendable or to be preferred that rather than coming unto God anxiously, fearfully, we ought rather to come unto God in confidence and assurance. But rather it is the case that this is the requirement of the Christian's prayer. We must come unto Him in the confidence of faith. James 1, verse 16, Let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven about with the wind and tossed. How could we even come unto the Father in prayer if we are filled with continual doubts? Are we like unto Abraham and Sarah, who when they received the covenant promise of God that they would have a child in their old age, doubted that word of God and even laughed at that word? Are we like unto Peter, who when he was walking upon the water so long as his eyes were fixed on Jesus, stood on top of the water, but then who took his eyes off of Christ, doubted, and began to sink. Not only is it the case, beloved, that we must come to God in the confidence of faith, it's also this, we can. It is possible for you to come to God with the certain confidence that He will hear your prayer. 
The possibility is found in the work of His Son, Jesus Christ. Notwithstanding that we are unworthy of it, God will, for the sake of Christ our Lord, certainly hear our prayers. Our confidence is not naturally found within us. Some of you who are gathered here this morning could well by nature be timid, fearful. That does not mean then that you do not have the ability to go to God in prayer. But rather that you and every one of us must draw our strength, our confidence, our assurance from the finished work of Christ. Believing that Jesus Christ was delivered for our offenses and believing that Jesus Christ left not a single sin outstanding on our account, the confidence of the Christian is, I can, I may come unto God's throne of grace and God will not slam the door preventing me from coming before Him. But Jesus Christ has opened up that middle door of partition. Jesus Christ has taken those who once were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and Jesus Christ brings them into the covenant and into fellowship with God, our Father in heaven. And so let us then, in this day, and for all the days that God is pleased to give unto us upon this earth, come consistently with humility of heart unto our Father in prayer, and in that way express our gratitude to Him. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father and our God in heaven, a broken and a contrite heart, thou, Lord, wilt not despise. We thank thee for the gift of prayer. We thank thee that even though we come unto thee with weakness of faith and so many doubts, yet for Jesus' sake thou dost hear and answer. But thou graciously forgive the sins of this morning, in the blessed name of thy Son that we offer this prayer. Amen.